he wasn't a degenerate. He was loved. He was a son, a brother. He was a grandson, a cousin, a friend, a nephew, but he became addicted to a substance that he had no control. After losing her son to an opioid overdose, Monica Tipton is using her experience to make sure other parents don't go through the same thing. She's our guest on this episode of Win This Year. Drugs and alcohol. Bullying. Unhealthy relationships. Depression. Internet safety. Substance use. Body image. Self-injury. Suicide. Anxiety. Social media. Kids. Pre-teens. Parenting. Middle school. High school. Adolescents. Teens. Coping skills. Self-care. Relationships. Strategies. Life skills. Prevention. Solutions. Help. Hope. Leadership. Insight. Information. Inspiration. You're listening to Win This Year, the official podcast of Not My Kid, a prevention nonprofit focused on inspiring positive life choices by helping kids, parents, families, and those who work with youth. Informative, interesting, inspiring. Win This Year. Welcome to Win This Year. I'm Shane Watson, public information officer and prevention specialist for Not My Kid. Our guest for this episode is Monica Tipton. As a community leader and prior business owner, Monica Tipton has spent more than 20 years establishing relationships with diverse populations and bringing communities together. In her previous role, she served as a leader in diversity and inclusion at the Target Tempe headquarters campus to bring forward-thinking events that broke down barriers. Monica looks for opportunities where she can bridge gaps, inspire others, and build stronger communities. She currently serves as the chairperson for Community Days of Service for the Arizona Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Celebration Committee. Monica holds a Bachelor of Science degree in counseling with an emphasis in addictions, chemical dependency, and substance abuse. She is a current candidate for a Master of Science in Clinical Psychology with a specialization in forensic psychology. Monica, welcome to Win This Year. Thank you, Shane. Thank you for having me. It's bittersweet being here today, but I'm happy that I have this opportunity to share. We're grateful that you're willing to share your experience, hopefully, and I, and I strongly suspect that someone will benefit from what we're about to talk about today. Our organization, Not My Kid, we've always been focused on substance use. That's the topic that the organization was founded on, in substance use prevention in general, and that includes opioids and prescription drugs. However, more recently, we've become even more focused on that area specifically as part of the state opioid response funding we've received from the Arizona Governor's Office of Youth, Faith, and Family. And that leads us to our conversation today. Again, we're so grateful you're here and you're willing to share your story and your son Daniel's story. Please tell us about Daniel, who he was, what he was like, and what life was like for your family while he was growing up. Well, Daniel, he was the oldest of four. He was my sweet boy. He was a great kid. He had a sweet, sensitive spirit. Um, he loved his family. He was protective. He had a sense of humor. He was funny. He was artistic and creative. He was very athletic. He loved sports, Philadelphia Eagles. That was his NFL team. He loved Penn State. You know, um, he loved to travel. He had a great smile. He was always rooting for the underdog. He was a hard worker. He was just a normal kid trying to navigate through life. He was a lot of fun to be around. 
And what was your home like? I know that when you and I have talked on the phone previously, one thing that you emphasize, and we we really try to drive this point home when we do talk about substance use on this show, that it can happen in environments with amazing parents. Now, what was it that your husband, you've mentioned to me before what his profession was and what you were doing. I want to paint this picture of what type of a home Daniel was growing up in. Well, sure. And, you know, and and my husband at the time, um, because we since have been divorced, but he was a captain with the fire department. Um, I was very active in my church. We, he and I both were very active in our local community. I volunteered in our kids' classroom. I did events at their school. I was a fellow Rotarian. Um, you know, we were that family that went on family vacations and had movie nights together and uh, game nights together. We ate at the dinner table together. You know, we spent quality time together. You did all of the things that people in behavioral health, mental health, constantly emphasize to parents and families to do. And what did you picture Daniel doing in the future? What were his dreams or goals? What, what did he love to do? And, uh, well, you know, and by no means, you know, we weren't perfect, but we did. We did try our very best to implement those things, to have a good family life for our kids. And what I pictured Daniel and I, and he and I talked about this, I pictured us somehow working together in business. And we talked about it often, he and I, uh, him being the oldest. So we had a very close relationship. He was my buddy. So he said he was going to be a pro football player. And he was always talking about how he was going to buy me a house and he was going to buy me a car. And I said, you know, that's great. And I, I love a big house. I love a big car. And, you know, I really don't have those needs, but that's great if you want to do that. But I told him I'd rather own a business and let's do that together. And so he said, okay, well, I'll invest in your business. So then we started talking about setting up a nonprofit to help underserved communities. We didn't really decide exactly what that was going to be or what it looked like, but it was something that we were talking about. And it was going to somehow include his artistic abilities because he was a very talented artist. You know, Daniel loved football. Um, in fact, he said football was his life. But, you know, he was also very talented in baseball. But his goal was to go pro in football. So when he played, I never missed any of his games. And he'd always look back to make sure that I was sitting there in the stands. I love the fact that he was going to buy those things for you. That's, I mean, that's incredible. Do you know when and why he first used drugs or alcohol, what it was and what the circumstances were? Are you even aware of, of necessarily when that started? I knew about him experimenting with marijuana when he was in junior high school. He was hanging out with one of the fellows on his Pop Warner football team a few hours on the weekend. And unbeknownst to me, the older brother of that teammate was smoking marijuana and introduced Daniel to it. He had tried it. He liked it. My husband somehow found out about it. He nixed those visits, and that was the first time that I had heard about it, and we started having conversations about it. 
It was also in junior high school that Daniel stated that he had gotten drunk a few times drinking alcohol, though that wasn't his substance of choice. So that was kind of the first time that we knew of that he had started some type of drug use. Do you know of his motivation? Now, you mentioned very social situations. You mentioned, you know, with his peers, with people from the Pop Warner football team. Do you know if his initial motivation was just a matter of it being a social thing, a peer pressure thing, or did he ever disclose to you whether it was curiosity or if it was boredom? Did you ever manage to find out what his motivation was to begin with? I never really did. And I, I really felt like it was more peer pressure at the time. He had always been in a private school setting and he had transitioned into a public school setting. So he went from private school to, and then a charter school, and then he went to a public school. So um, he was just kind of at that age where he was trying, and then he was at an, in a new school and a different environment and he was kind of trying to fit in. So it, it didn't feel like he was doing it on his own, but you know, I could be wrong. What did his progression look like? Do you know, after you mentioned marijuana and alcohol, do you know what he moved on to and in what order? And, and at what point did it start to affect him in ways that changed his behavior or that you and or your husband noticed? Well, you know, just taking, you know, back a little bit, um, peer pressure has a lot to do with drug abuse and the wanting to try and being curious. You see other people do it. You want to fit in. You, We tell our kids, just say no, right? Uh, but I had chronic back pain, and at the time, Back then, I had been prescribed Vicodin due to a lower back injury. So because of my then-husband's profession as a fire captain paramedic, I knew that Vicodin was a controlled substance, and I only took it if I was in severe pain. Um, and, of course, then, in those days, you were given a prescription. When you were given a prescription, they'd give you, like, a 30-day supply that eventually you know, this generic hydrocodone, then oxycodone. Well, I specifically remember an instance where I went to take the medication and I looked at the bottle and thought it was strange because the bottle looked half full and I hadn't been taking the medication for a while, but I dismissed any misgivings because I was busy with the other children. I thought maybe I just took and took it and just forgot about it. So after I had gotten another refill. I started to pay attention and pills began missing. I brought it to my husband's attention and long story short, Daniel admitted that he had taken the pills, but he said it was to sell them, not to use them. And I'm making that point for a reason, not to make Daniel look bad, but to point out, you know, the denial part of this. So the three of us had a conversation about the dangers of Vicodin and its addictive qualities, but also that selling it even though it's a prescription can get you into trouble as a drug dealer. It could get you expelled from school. It could ruin your life and chances for a good future. 
you know, and also as people of faith, what kind of message does that send? How does that shine light in the darkness? I mean, we had these conversations that we thought were the best that we knew to have to let him know that it wasn't okay and that it was intolerable. Um, he had consequences and we thought, or at least I did, that he learned his lesson. And then fast forward, when Daniel got his wisdom teeth out, I overheard him, this was in high school, I overheard him on the phone talking about it and saying that he got that good stuff, which was given to him during the surgery, and I knew what that meant. So that again began to tell me that something wasn't right. Did his behavior change at all, or was it a matter of the what let you onto this was that when you had found the missing pills and when you had heard the phone call, but were you seeing any difference in him from the Daniel that you knew? Yeah, we did. I mean, he was shoplifting. He was getting caught shoplifting. So, um, He had, and just to give an example, he had a rough senior year. He wasn't able to play football anymore because of his grades. So we were getting calls from his teachers that he was in jeopardy of not graduating because of his lack of focus and not turning in assignments. His teacher said he was falling asleep in class or nodding off, um, which he, you know, he didn't end up walking with his class that year. He went to an alternative school during the summer to make up for the classes, but he did graduate. Um, now, I really didn't know how bad Daniel's drug problem was until maybe about a year after he graduated high school. I also didn't know that he was already using heroin. It was when he started using heroin intravenously that things started getting really bad. So again, something I didn't know until after the fact. So at that time, I didn't realize that oxycodone is pharmaceutical grade heroin and it's highly addictive and often leads to street heroin abuse. Absolutely. I mean, especially when the prescription runs out. A lot of times if somebody's trying to find oxycodone or hydrocodone on the street, the pills are very expensive. Heroin is much cheaper, much readily available in our state, in Arizona specifically when it comes to black tar heroin. Very easy to find, very inexpensive, and it's activating the same opioid receptors in the brain. Now, you mentioned his progression to heroin. Is that the point at which you sought out help for him? What type of help did you seek out for Daniel? Did it seem to help him at the time? Well, when he was in high school, um, we were able to get him outpatient treatment at one of the local hospitals. There were other families there, too, in participation from around the valley. So we had some family therapy while our kids um, who were overcoming addiction, had their session, and then we had sessions together. Uh, we asked, when we went to the hospital, we did ask about inpatient treatment. Now, keep in mind, this is, you know, early on. This is, like, back in early 2000s. We asked about inpatient treatment, but at that time, it was something like three days, and they had to show symptoms of withdrawal or they had to have had overdosed or, or something like that, you know, for it to be considered a medical reason in order to be admitted. So um, at that time, it was hard to find help. So insurance didn't cover what it will now. And the community resources then didn't really offer um, 
or have the resources that they do now, especially with the grant, like the state opioid response grant. Um, so, you know, that was one form of treatment that we did seek for that outpatient. It, it helps some, but sometime after that, Daniel overdosed in front of a Circle K on another side of town where he had gone to purchase drugs. He had a good Samaritan called and saved my son's life. So he was found with the needle still in his arm. And little did I know that it wasn't his first time overdosing. After that incident, Daniel was scared and he wanted help. He was terrified and I was terrified too. So I reached out to a few trusted friends and one of the community resources I inquired didn't have enough beds. The other didn't keep him overnight after observation because he wasn't sick enough. Again, you know, those withdrawal system symptoms that they were looking for. So as far as if it seemed to help him, you know, I don't know if, you know, I can't speak for Daniel. I don't know if Daniel felt that the outpatient treatment helped him. At the time, I know that it was comforting for him to talk to other teens going through the same thing with the outpatient treatment program, but he did complain that he couldn't stay at the community resource because he wasn't sick enough. I'm glad that that's changed. But um, he was at a point where he was tired of using and he wanted to get well and he didn't know what to do. And to be honest, none of us did but we at least had the fortitude of looking into rehabilitation, but it was just so expensive. It's unfortunate that it took as long as it did for that to change because it sounds like he had the willingness, and as someone that now works in the field that you're in, someone that's lived through it personally with your son, that willingness to seek treatment, to seek help is everything. Once you have that, you can create change. It's unfortunate that inpatient sounded like it wasn't an option for him because he didn't meet their criteria. And and one thing I am glad about what we've seen in this last decade is the progression that we're starting to make. There's still some areas that definitely need improvement to allow the availability and the affordability of substance use treatment for people who are seeking it out. Can you take us through the timeline of January 2009 and what happened? Well, Daniel had gotten arrested for shoplifting. And, you know, so, and remember this, you know, he was shoplifting to support his habit. And prior to, and that was prior to January, January, and he was awaiting his trial. He wasn't happy about it, but he knew he had to suffer the consequences. He had a good attorney. He had also been down to the Army Recruitment Office and had taken the test to enlist. We had set boundaries, and Daniel hadn't been living at home, but he was doing better. He was sober. We allowed him to move back in right before Christmas 2008, and we spent Christmas together. So come January, and Daniel's on the right track, and one of the last conversations we had, um, he and I, uh, was with him in my car and him telling me that he was nervous about going back to jail and I remember reaching over and rubbing his back and telling him that it was going to be okay and it was all going to work out. Now, I didn't know that an old acquaintance who was a user had contacted Daniel in the weeks prior to his death and they started hanging out again. Daniel 
was clean and hadn't been using. He had asked me to pick him up from this young men's house after work one day. And he called while I was at work, but I couldn't answer to say, yes, I'm coming. I didn't forget about you. But he left me a message. Uh, but he didn't tell me where to pick him up. I called him back when I got the message, and the phone just rang and went to his voicemail. Called again before I left work, no answer. Needless to say, I kept calling until it started going straight to voicemail. And it, it, that just wasn't like Daniel, to not communicate with me, to just not show up, um, and to just disappear like that. So I was starting to become concerned. I'm sitting at home. I'm thinking that he'll the doorbell's going to ring. He didn't have a key at the time. The doorbell was going to ring. He was going to knock at the door any moment. Um, so I had been sleeping in the chair and on the couch downstairs so I could hear the door if in case that was the case. And a few days passed, and we had already been contacting his friends, old, current, and new. and um, driving around the neighborhood and visiting places and friends where Daniel would frequent and nobody had seen him. And six days had passed and still no one had seen or heard from him. And so it would have been his seventh day missing. Um, Daniel's dad left to go to work, and his shift started at around 7 a.m. And so he usually... Daniel's dad usually left around 5 to get to the station early to prepare for a shift. At around 5.30 a.m., there was this really hard knock at the door. And the doorbell rang and more knocking. So I jumped up, and because I thought it was Daniel, I ran to the door and I looked through the peephole, and it was two men nicely dressed, and my heart sank because I just knew what they were going to tell me. And I knew I had to open the door, um, even though I didn't want to. And it was, it was really just like in slow motion, you know, and verifying who I am verifying if Daniel lived there, asking me to sit down, me saying that I didn't want to sit down because even then I was still in denial of the whole situation and one of them insisting that I did sit. And then um, I knew what was coming. I knew what they were going to say. What did you find out about those days that he was unaccounted for? Did you find out where he was at, what friend it had been, any of those details were the, and I'm assuming these were police officers that you were speaking with, were they able to they, fill that in for you? They were. These were detectives that were at my door, and they were able to tell me some details. They went on to tell me that they found Daniel, they, um, that he was deceased of what looked to be an overdose to heroin. And medical reports did later confirm that. Um, 
that he was found by the mother of the young man who was supposed to be Daniel's friend that, you know, the house that he was at where I was supposed to pick him up. He was found in the closet covered with a blanket, but he looked like he was at peace. They continued on by saying that what they were told by this young man was that he and my son had used heroin when Daniel was there, um, sort of like a last hurrah before Daniel went to jail. And they wanted to get some more drugs to use. So um, the other guy left and uh, never returned because he had gotten caught shoplifting. So he didn't come home. So um, while this other young man was incarcerated, Daniel somehow ended up in his closet covered with a blanket. And the young man's mom, who's a single mom working long shifts as a nurse, she comes home. She sees that her son's jacket is on his bed and she, while she's checking his room and she goes to hang her son's jacket in the closet and she found my son. Even knowing the progression that you had seen and the fact that he had turned to heroin, I feel like no one ever expects to lose their child to an overdose. Were you in disbelief or was it something you had been even considering or bracing for, or was it something that still completely blindsided you? I was, I wasn't prepared for that. I was, I was in total, I had it in a, a total assumption and I was in total belief that Daniel was coming home, that he was doing better. Um, I was in serious shock and disbelief. I never, ever expected to bury my child um, or to tell his siblings that their brother wasn't coming home or, you know, to tell his grandmother that her grandson was gone or, you know, I was, I was just in shock. I was in disbelief. I was in denial for a long time. I thought we're making progress. He's back at home. He's getting, he's on the right track. He's going to enlist in the army. He's taking his lumps like a man and we're going to overcome this. I never ever expected that. What carried you through that time? I, I, I don't believe, I don't know if any parent ever fully heals from the loss of a child, but what allowed you to begin to heal? What carried you through what began at that time? Well, you know, there's not a, I, I have to say, there's not a day that doesn't go by that I don't think of Daniel. I think of him every day. As a woman of faith, what carried me through was my faith in God, support from my church family, support from loved ones and friends and even strangers in the community that have since become friends. It wasn't easy. It was very hard. I had good days and bad days, but my faith got me through. I also went to counseling. I was dealing with some PTSD from when the detectives came to the house and that tape just kept playing over and over in my head. Um, so counseling sessions really helped me with some tools and techniques to overcome that and to grasp that he was gone. Some other things that helped me um, was after a few months, I started to watch documentaries on heroin abuse and addiction recovery from the mouths of those who were living it or had lived it. 
And what I saw were people who were deeply, deeply hurting and they hated being addicted. And it helped me understand more of what Daniel was going through. You know, um, one guy, I remember saying, he said it wasn't even fun getting high anymore. He had to use just to survive and he hated it. He hated his life. And that's what Daniel had been saying to me. He hated using. He didn't like what was happening to him. And I find that more with heroin users because of its highly addictive qualities. They want to stop, but they can't. And um, I also talked to a few of the people that Daniel had been hanging out with when he was using and learned that he had overdosed a few times. So that wasn't the time that he overdosed in front of the Circle K, um, the time that he overdosed when he died. That wasn't his first time overdosing. And I learned that many of their associates in that group had passed away from drug overdose. I didn't do a lot of the talking. I just listened. I wasn't there to judge or to point fingers or to blame. I was there to listen and learn. And I was just thinking, how do I make this not happen again? So another parent doesn't have to go through this. And, you know, it's really difficult for me to talk about some of these personal things, but somewhere along the way, Shane, we have to break the stigma of addiction. We have to take the shame out of it and put courage back into it and celebrate when an, indi when an individual takes a stand for their recovery and not judge them if they relapse, but support them in getting back on track. And talking about it always helps in that healing process. Definitely. And, and that actually leads me right to the next thing I wanted to ask you. Based on your experience, you're talking about using your experience to make sure no other parent has to go through what you've gone through. Based on your experience, what would some of your main messages be to parents listening to this podcast? What would you like to emphasize? You just mentioned one of them. What are some of the most important things you would like to get across? I know it's difficult to see your child in pain. And sometimes it may even feel embarrassing asking for help because maybe in your mind, something like addiction doesn't happen in or to your family. And sometimes we want to coddle and enable. Other times we want to lay the, the hammer down because we're just sick and tired of it all. But addiction is not something that can be ignored. We can't throw our hands up because we're scared of the consequences or others' perceptions. We never give up on our kids. There are healthy boundaries. And the way to find those boundaries is through proper therapy and the right treatment program. And there are so many good groups out there, you know, like 12-step groups to help with accountability and groups to help families. You know, there's Families Anonymous, there's PAL, Parents of Addicted Loved Ones. But, you know, and it might take a few of these groups to visit before you find the right one. But the important thing is that you don't give up and you put in the same work as the one in recovery. And that's what I've learned through this process. And we also have to remember that recovery is about the addict. It's their road to recovery. And the roadmap is unique. It's unique for each individual, but the destination is the same. And there's hope. There's hope for recovery. The key is working together because addicts have a higher success rate of sober when their loved ones are involved in the process. 
You mentioned therapy and the right treatment program. We talked earlier about the fact that Daniel had the willingness to go to inpatient, which is a miracle in and of itself because there's there's a lot of people who are addicted who don't want to. But he was not able to go to inpatient because of he didn't meet those certain criteria. In addition to that, in retrospect, is there anything you feel would have made a difference for your son? Whether it would have been, we already talked about access to care, affordability of care. Is there anything else that would have made a difference that we need to be focusing on right now for those who are struggling with addiction? Well, you know, um, at that time, you know, I was looking back and I was thinking, what about drug court? I didn't even know that that was an option. Why didn't anybody tell me about that? And, you know, when he was getting arrested for shoplifting, he was shoplifting because he was supporting a drug habit. And he kept saying, he said that so many times, um, but nobody listened. I didn't even know that that was an option. And of course, with, you know, insurance, um, but if it doesn't, if you have insurance, but if it doesn't cover everything for rehabilitation, and we need affordable treatment options, what parent wouldn't advocate for drug court if it's an option for their child? So, you know, in retrospect, I wish I had known about drug court. I wish I had known that that was an option. And I also really wish that we had taken more advantage of the 12-step programs and keeping Daniel in therapy because it's so crucial that those in recovery have an outlet where they can freely speak in a safe environment and develop a support system. The 12-step community is huge. It's it's so important. They they need to know that they're not alone. They need to know that they have a support system and in and in being in therapy to learn effective coping strategies. For myself as a person in long-term recovery, I, I can't advocate the 12-step programs enough. One of the big things that kept me relapsing and going back into using was was guilt over things that I had done, and I was convinced that nobody out there has ever been like me, nobody ever could be, nobody's ever going to understand, and within two minutes of being in my first 12-step meeting, I find out that I'm not alone, I'm in good company, people understand, but they also have tangible steps that I can take to not return to being that person. And I'm so glad you mentioned drug court. I have seen tremendous success come out of drug court because it's treating the individuals as people who are struggling with a behavioral health issue. There's there's people who would not be out shoplifting otherwise, people who would not be out doing the things that they were doing, forging prescriptions or whatever people have done. It's not a one-size-fits-all thing. And so I am encouraged by beginning to see, at least in some locations, the increase in availability of drug court. So all this that you mentioned leads up to you heading in the direction that you're in now. When did you decide to get your degree in substance use counseling? And while the answer may be obvious, how big of a factor in that decision was your personal experience? Well, my personal experience played a huge factor in me wanting to get my degree in substance abuse counseling mainly because I wanted to know, you know, how this could happen to my child and why. And um, when my son was an outpatient 
rehabilitation. You know, he shared with me that at his high school, you could buy any drug you wanted right under the nose of school personnel on the lawn just outside the cafeteria. And I thought, how is that possible with all those adults standing around? How can you how can you do that? And it's the way the kids hide and pass the drugs around. Um, so I wanted to make a difference. And there's always that aspect of shame, which is why I'm here. I'm here to change that. You know, there's such a negative stigma of drug addiction in our society, especially heroin. And we treat these individuals like they are the degenerates of our community. And these are mostly good people who made poor choices. They tried drugs and got addicted. And when those individuals are our children, it makes us feel like a failure. And, you know, I knew I had done and tried everything that I knew how to do as a parent. I was active in my church. You know, like I said, you know, we were volunteering in the community at our kids' school. You know, my husband had a great job. We did everything that we knew how to do. Yet my son became addicted to drugs. He wasn't a degenerate. He was loved. He was a son, a brother. He was a grandson, a cousin a friend, a nephew, but he became addicted to a substance that he had no control. And he started doing things to support that habit. It's important to draw it back to that individual and to use that person first language where you talked about him being a son and him being a grandson and all that, you know, we need to look at people who are dealing with addiction as individuals. There's labels that get used and there's words that get used that perpetuate the stigma that you talked about earlier. And that's another progression that I'm happy to see in the last 10 years, especially the last five years, is the way that it's being talked about. You, you talked about you know people making unhealthy choices. They're human beings and they're trying to cope in the only way that they know how. Most of the people that I've met who were addicts who were in recovery didn't wake up in the morning and say to themselves, I'm going to try to make everybody else's lives as miserable as I possibly can. What they did is they woke up and they said, I am hurting and I'm going to do what I need to do to make this stop. And there is collateral damage. There are things that happen as a result of that. So September is recovery month. And I know that you're a big advocate for recovery. What's the most important thing you'd like people to know and understand about substance use recovery? Well, I want people to know that there's hope for recovery, but you have to be willing to let go and take part in the process. And everybody's road to recovery looks different. Um, and you're doing a disservice to yourself and the one in recovery if you compare one person's recovery to another's. We're not all built the same. You know, our stories are different. But we are striving for the same goal, and that is that our loved ones become healthy and whole. And they do that with healthy boundaries, love, and support. The recovery is focused on them. And as we allow that process to work, everything else will fall into place in due time. It takes patience and understanding, educating ourselves, and working together. Is there anything else you'd like to add or anything I may have overlooked? is that, you know, one thing that Daniel's friends kept saying during and after his funeral is that Daniel would always say how much his parents loved him. And that was so very true. And I'm so glad he voiced it and he knew that. 
and you know we did the best we could with what he had as so many parents do you do better when you know better today there are more and even better opportunities for treatment i know that i will see my son again my son is no longer here but your son or daughter can be and regardless of the circumstances or consequences reach out for help and take advantage of these opportunities and you know on another note parents have to work together it's not about you it's about them and i'm sorry if that sounds harsh or brash it's not meant to but that's really the reality of it the recovery is about them it's about the one who's addicted so try not to take things personally don't be so hard on yourself and keep the faith we could not have ended any better than that. Monica, thank you so much for sharing your time, your knowledge, your experience. Thank you for being here on Win This Year. Thank you, Shane. And as always on Win This Year, we'd like to give you some resources if you or someone you know is seeking mental or behavioral health support. You can reach the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline by calling 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-TALK. The crisis text line can be reached by texting the word LISTEN to 741-741. The Not My Kid text line can be reached by texting the word QUESTION to area code 602-584-8474. That's area code 602-584-8474. You'll be given a form to fill out, and a Not My Kid staff member will get back to you. And finally, dial 211 or visit 211.org anywhere in the U.S. or Canada for community information and referral services. Thanks once again to our guest, Monica Tipton. If you've enjoyed this episode, if you enjoy Win This Year, please be sure to subscribe, share, and spread the word. Win This Year can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and nearly every other mainstream podcast outlet. If you have questions or concerns, would like to suggest a guest or a topic for a future episode, email us at winthisyear@notmykid.org. winthisyear@notmykid.org. As always, all links mentioned in this episode will be in the show notes along with all the links for Not My Kid's social media. I'm Shane Watson public information officer and prevention specialist for Not My Kid. Thank you again for listening to Win This Year.